if you're clear on vision, if you're clear on where you want to take the organization and you align everybody with that vision and that clarity and how we're going to do it, then every decision within the organization that has to be made goes one of two ways. It either moves us closer to our end goal or it doesn't. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in the weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Hey there, Harry, and welcome to another episode of Leaders of B2B. Excited to dive into the conversation with you here today. Nice to be here, Jake, and thank you for having me. Awesome. For everyone out there who doesn't know who you are or what More Fulfillment is, can you give us just a quick 60-second overview? Sure. Amware Fulfillment is a privately owned national fulfillment company with facilities across the country in the six major metro markets. And we do fulfillment for multiple customers and within a building. It's a shared tenant environment, and we do everything health and beauty, cosmetics, food, you name it, and, and we probably fulfill it. Awesome. That's, that's amazing. And so I'm very intrigued. And were you a founder from this company from the start, getting it going? Or what did the journey look like in terms of actually getting this company going? So this is uh, this is probably the perfect definition of six degrees of separation. I am not a founder of Amware. Am- Amware was actually started in 1989 at a time I was working for a different logistics company in the Northeast. And I also happened to be working with one of the founders or later an individual who joined Amware as part owner. We worked together in the 90s. I actually came on board with Amware in 2015 as the chief operations officer. The company was in process of changing from a B2B industrial type warehousing, pallet in, pallet out, box in, box out, to a fulfillment company. And my background is very strong operationally. I was brought in and asked to do that. And then two years later, I became CEO of Amware. That's incredible. And so I guess maybe to understand like what that journey looks like. So it sounds like you came in right as you were moving from that B to more that D to C fulfillment approach. I guess what is what has that been like shifting an entire kind of like a logistics type company like this to a different business model and a D to C approach, especially? It's the difference. It's the difference between snail mail and overnight express. The B2B business tends to be much larger orders. Uh, generally more time or lead time because you're shipping product that is going to be used down the road somewhere. So you have days and sometimes even weeks to fulfill orders. So planning is fairly easy and you can, as long as you can plan for something, you can get it done fairly well with good planning. The fulfillment business is orders that we get in by three o'clock, get out the door today. And we don't know what's coming in for the most part, right? People are online, they're shopping, they're looking. Promos happen, so you get a lot of volatility. You get a lot of spikes in the fulfillment business. Hey, we're running a promotion next week. We're going to be on Good Morning America. We don't really know how successful. We think we're going to have 10,000 orders, where a typical day might be 1,000. The fulfillment business requires agility, 
nimble, flex, good planning, good relationships with staffing companies, with material handling companies. And you've really got to broaden your network because things have to happen very quickly in the fulfillment business. It's interesting. And so I'm curious, why did you guys shift to this? Because it sounds a lot harder. And I'm curious, why did you guys shift to that from B2B? Was it just opportunity in the market or a positioning choice or what led to you guys the decision to make that shift? So the B2B business is the B2B business is a fairly crowded space, a lot of national providers. There's not a lot of value add typically in the B2B business, right? If someone's ordering five pallets of a product, there's not much there's not much value you're going to add to that. The world was shifting really to online e-commerce. Millennials buy virtually everything online, food, eggs, house rental material, you name it, millennials are online shopping, and it seemed to be the wave of the future. Now, the pandemic hit, and that really accelerated things as retail stores closed down, and people really didn't have much choice other than to buy online. We were looking at the space, we were looking at the trends, we were looking at the growth and fulfillment, and we really decided that it's a good space to be in for growth purposes, a lot of value add in the fulfillment business. If you think about um, receiving something. We're the last people to see that product before the end user does. We get to pick it. We get to pack it. We get to put the, we get to put the smile inside the box is what I like to say versus the smile outside the box. And so there's a lot of opportunity for value add, for building kits. You wind up with a lot of these online e-tailers that get into the subscription business. So you like what you have. Now you can get a repeat order uh, every month. We just saw it as a great opportunity to grow and to add value and to come become really a strategic arm of many of my uh, retailers. Yeah, that's incredible. And so I'm curious just to maybe understand a bit more about what it's like to really run a business like this. So from what I understand, like, so you guys have warehouses all over the country you're essentially getting shipments of your products to different warehouses and then you're shipping them out to fulfillment. I saw you guys have two-day delivery to 98% of the country. And I, I think that's like super impressive. And so I'm curious, what is the logistics of this? Are you guys owning these buildings? Are you fully renting your own biz- building? Do you share that building with others? Like, how does that all work? We don't own our buildings. We lease our buildings. It allows for greater flexibility. And it just happens to be a business model that we follow. There's value to ownership as well, but we're not in the real estate business. So we lease our buildings. We lease our material handling equipment. Uh, We literally lease everything that makes sense to do. And yes, we're all over the country. We get very close to end users that way. It allows us to be very efficient in getting product out and using an efficient parcel method for getting that shipment to your door. You can have one facility you can put in the middle of the country, but if customers want that product next day, you're going to wind up shipping everything air to get that done. And that's very expensive and prohibitive. Yeah, our business model is to run buildings approximately 100, 150,000 square foot buildings. They are not standalone. Sometimes they are part of a much, much larger complex in which we carve out space. A typical building of ours will have 10 to 12 different retailers selling in that building. What we really try to do is optimize the building for seasonality. So those uh, those retailers that get very busy at Christmas time, we look for complementary businesses that get very business in the summertime. And so this way we're able to move our employees within the four walls amongst the customers. Don't have to worry about layoffs necessarily. If it gets slow, you build this big bubble up for the fourth quarter for Christmas season, holiday season, and then come January, you're trying to figure out what to do with your associates. So we look for complementary accounts. 
We do supplement the workforce with with temps on occasion for lower skilled kind of jobs, and it works out it works out very well in, in allowing us to efficiently get retailers out to market and handle promotions and spikes and what have you on very short notice. Yeah, that's amazing. And so I'm curious. So say a brand comes to you and they're wanting to work with you on like fulfillment and everything. What does that typically look like? Are they shipping all their materials to one warehouse? Are you spreading out their shipments to a few of your warehouses for their products? And then what does that experience look like from like just getting all that up and running? So interestingly, most customers, virtually everyone wants to be in multiple facilities, but being in multiple facilities comes with a level, it adds a level of complexity and inventory management, logistics, shipping to those sites. And many of them haven't really hit that size yet where a second facility makes a lot of sense for them. Because when you have a second facility or a third facility, it requires extra inventory. And with that comes carrying charges and all the associated costs. So everybody at some point believes their growth will drive them there. The reality for us is probably 10% of our customers are on two, three, or four facilities. They're big enough and they have the infrastructure to be able to manage the inventory. They can carry the inventory. So that's pretty much what it looks like. At Amware, we pride ourselves in flexibility. We develop a solution that is tailored for each retailer. So we don't have standard operating procedures across all of our customers and say, okay, this is the way product needs to come in. This is the way it's going to look when it goes out. We really want to understand how do you want to, how do you want to ship your product? What do you want it to look like when your end user opens it up, when your customer opens that box? And we'll tailor a program for each and each individual customer. Now, each of those customers will have their own unique standard operating procedures, which we now have to train across our facilities. And it's part of what we do. But again, that creates efficiencies, flexibility, and most people enjoy learning. And most people like the variety of a little bit of change right within the four walls. So it works out very nicely. And then, and so that makes a ton of sense though. Yeah. With a smaller e-commerce shop, I didn't even think about that. It's not just the logistics of spreading it out. It's for them to be able to afford the inventory to spread it out, which is a whole another challenge to it. And so what does that look like though? Like onboarding a new customer? Are you then, because that seems like that would be an intensive project where you have to get integrated into their site, into their platforms to start getting orders, handling all of that. What does that typically set up look like to get a brand going with a fulfillment company? So we typically integrate as many as 20 customers a year, which might not seem like a lot. There are years that it's 30 and we have a template built out for how to do that. We have a team that's dedicated solely for transitioning customers, which means we can hold your hand. If you're not sure what you need to do, we'll tell you exactly what you need to do, how you prepare for it, how it happens. We can do most of the heavy lifting for our customers. Now, there there is some IT work generally that might be the hardest piece for our customers on the integration side. If they struggle, if they're not sure they've got the IT resources, we can recommend several consultants that we work with that will help our customers. So it's Pretty seamless for our customers. Simple implementations can take place over 30 days. More complex ones might take 60 to 90 days, right? Depending upon the handshakes that have to take place, the data that has to be exchanged. And it's fairly stressful for a lot of our customers. It's interesting. It's You're going to go out and buy another car, but you're going to buy a used car because you're not happy with your used car. But you understand your used car. When it rains, it might take a little bit longer to start. So you go out five or 10 minutes early. And the reason I mention that are those are the barriers to change. People are afraid of change. They don't like change. They know what they have. And it's interesting that many retailers will bounce along 
with kind of marginal performance. It's not really great. It's not really helping them, but they're scared to death to make that change because they're looking at exactly what you asked me before. All, all the IT work that has to be done, the handshakes, the testing, we don't know how to do that. So we'll try to make this thing work. And consequently, their business suffers. They don't grow as fast as they should if they grow at all. They've got unhappy customers because maybe the quality and the people that they're dealing with from a third-party perspective, or even if it's insourced, they're not quite getting what they want, but again, reticent to make that change. And they're afraid to take that step to go from good to great. If you deal with the right third-party company like Amware is, uh, it's seamless, it's painless, it's thorough. And when you're done, it's one of those things where you say, why didn't I do this years ago? Yeah. And there's a question of when, with most of the companies that you're seeing, is this an increased cost for a lot of them, maybe in the short term, I would assume, but probably in the long run, I imagine if you try to build all of this in-house, it you maybe save some, but then it's like you're also just pouring all your time and energy into to building this thing that you can, that's not your kind of core strength as a D2C brand. It, it, at the end of the day, it is definitely in, not a long-term play. Even in the short term, it is much more cost efficient to outsource. And the reason I say that, if you think about infrastructure, if you think about brick and mortar building, what size building do you have? Do you buy it for today? Do you build it for tomorrow? Do you overbuild it? Are you paying for capacity that's sitting there and you've got empty space because you think you're going to double your business? So you've, you've annexed onto your building, but you're not growing as fast as you think you are. Material handling equipment, staffing, and then think about all the infrastructure that you have to have. To manage that, you need a whole HR department. We have 800 to 1,000 people at any time working for us. So could you imagine the infrastructure you would have to as you're growing to manage people? And now your distribution point might be in Dallas and your general offices might be on the East or West Coast. So now you're trying to manage an operation remotely. And that includes HR, that includes marketing, that includes operations, that includes safety. If you think about all those things that you have to invest in, it's fairly pricey. On the other hand, Amware has all of that. We have a robust IT team, operations team, safety team, HR team, and you're only paying for a portion of that. You're paying for the portion that you actually use. Warehouse management systems, ERP systems that you need to run those back-end rooms, those warehouses are expensive. They're pricey people to maintain that. We have all that. And you don't have to buy a system. You're going to buy a portion of the system or use a portion of the system and you're going to pay accordingly. So it's really a beautiful model that matches your revenue stream with your expense stream, which every accountant and CFO loves because our pricing generally, our model is transactional, right? The more business, the more you'll pay for, the less business, the less you'll pay for. And you don't have to worry necessarily about growth. We become a strategic partner. We sit down with you in your meetings. We want to understand your growth plans and we'll prepare the logistics piece of it to match your growth plan so that we're not an inhibitor, but we're a facilitator. And we really give companies a strategic advantage in the logistics area for growth. And if you think about Walmart's phenomenal growth and success over the years was really predicated on one simple thing. They had a logistics plan that was superior to their competitors. They could get product out to warehouses faster, less expensive. They broke the code on that simply because they understood that was a big differentiator for retailers selling the same products. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That's just such a great point. I think, and especially if you look at the core competencies of a D2C brand, like this is just, these are the things that they don't want to do. They want to market, they want to build brand, they want to 
build a community. And that is such a hard thing in and of itself. And all the other side of it, that's a whole separate business. It's a whole totally different skill set as well. Jake, on the cost side, one important element that I didn't mention, a shame on me, is the cost of parcel. My customers individually, if they have to sit down and negotiate with the parcel carriers, may get an okay rate if they're decent at negotiation. And if they're not, they'll pay a rack rate. We have tremendous purchase power with the parcel carriers. We have tremendous savings that we can offer. We pass those savings on to our customers. Typically, the parcel spend is about three to four times of the warehouse spend. So for every million dollars that you're going to write a check to Amware Fulfillment for warehouse services, you're probably going to spend $4 million uh, and send that to a parcel carrier. We spend over $100 million with our parcel carriers annually, and we have great buying power. We've got great cooperation. We don't get hit with limits uh, as the season comes in, as the holiday season comes in. We're not put on restrictions. We can get shipments out the door. And... Our customers benefit from that. It's a win-win. They reduce their parcel spend immediately. They, As I mentioned before, I think at the end of the day, when you compare apples to apples on the warehousing spend, they'll save money there as well, and they'll get a better product for it. Yeah, I love that. So another aspect of this I want to hit on is you're dealing with a lot of people in this business. You mentioned you're doing temp workers. You've got people in warehouses. I think you said like 800 to 1,000 or so. And and I'm curious, how do you go about that level of people operation? What structures have you had to put in place to effectively manage, hire, retain, recruit? What has it taken to actually operate that number of people? As I mentioned earlier, we have robust human resources, robust IT, robust safety, and we build that as we see our business growing. We're no different than what I preach to my customers about growth. We anticipate growth in the business, and then we hire the appropriate experts in that field to help us maintain those relationships. Now, internally, I would tell you that I've I'm in the logistics field now for 40 years. These are the most difficult times from a labor perspective, I think, that I've ever seen in my entire working career. It's not been an evolution or a step change. It's literally been a revolution. When I first started work, my reputation was dear. I employers, future employers would call up for references and someone might say, hey, that Harry's a great guy. You're really getting someone good. Well, they may not. It's very different today and the reference checks are difficult to come by. So we use software to help us analyze people and help us understand where we need to provide training for them. So the infrastructure is here. It's difficult to attract. Once you have them like customers, you don't want to lose them because it's a a lot harder to replace an associate. I think the government puts a price of about $7,500 per employee per year for turnover. So if you've got turnover, there's a lot of money that you're burning and retraining, reorienting, and it's not good for morale. So we invest a lot of money in training, in making our environment safe, in making our environments a good place to work and trying to create a family type environment, if you will. In order to help us recruit, we do offer incentives to our associates for referrals. We don't have a problem with families working in the facility. It's a different world today than it was back then. And if you're trying to take tried and true recruiting strategies to market today, I think you're going to really struggle. You've got to be creative, flexible work hours, flexible shifts, try to accommodate people as best you can, because the bottom line is you really want a consistent, repetitive workforce that ages with the company because their tribal knowledge, their investment in your company, their willingness to do a great job as being part of the team makes a huge difference in the product that that we put out. It's incredible. And I guess if you had to look at one thing that we would say, like maybe helps you ensure you guys, if we were to like 
zero and let's go on that hiring process. Like with hiring that many people, like what is one of the one or two key things that have been really crucial to make sure you guys make the right hire? We'll start, obviously we'll start with looking at the background as best as you possibly can. Multiple interviews, qualifying people, having a sit down one-on-one with multiple people within the organization to really gauge their interest. Why do you want to work here? As opposed, we're happy you showed up. There's the warehouse. We're going to bring you out there and start working. So why do you want to work for us? What do you know about us? What have you heard about us? We use, we use an outside product from Predictive Index that allows us to gauge many things about an, a prospective associate, safety, intent, what's their concentration level, where are they lacking, where, where do we need to make an investment in them? And if we can, we'll for sure do that. But it's really about qualifying people, walking them around the shop before they even get there. Are they Do they feel comfortable when they're in the building? Do they get in there and say, oh, this is not what I thought it would be? You know, what's your prior experience? And again, why did you leave and what are you looking for what are you looking for short term? What are you looking for longer term? What role can we play in that? What do you really expect to get out of your next job? And again, it's not about asking the questions because everybody asks questions. It's about listening for the answers. It's not about checking a box and say, okay, I've done it. I've interviewed this associate. It's really about trying to understand, are we going to be a good fit for them? Are they going to be happy? Because if they're not happy, it's a short-term fix if they stay till they find the next employer. And if they're not happy, it will be reflected in their work. So th- those that's how we really go about vetting the people who come to work for us. It's an intense process. And we're willing to invest in that process to make sure we get the right associate. Because again, at $7,500 per, you can make a lot of investment in there and take the time. Because if that same position turns over three times, you're probably in excess of $20,000 a year in lost productivity. And just even the morale of people constantly looking at a revolving door. Why do people come here and leave? And then they ask, why am I staying? So there's a lot of compelling reasons to do it. And again, we have the infrastructure to do it. If you're an entrepreneur, if you're a retailer who wants to do that, it's generally not your core competency. Again, a big reason for outsourcing is This is for our customers, the back room, the warehouse, the shipping is not a profit center for them. And it's not really a core competency. These people are good at marketing. They're good at selling. They're good at talking to customers and finding out what turns them on and what turns them off. And by having a competent partner that does your fulfillment for you, you're able to do that. Yeah, I love that. And and so you hit on this a little bit, but what are some of those other things you do to keep people retained, to keep them engaged, especially when you're looking at like entry-level labor, people that are there kind of um, just kind of stuffing boxes on the, what what are some of the things you do? Because I know that is the other hard part is that you get people on the door and you want to keep them around, you know, over. What are some of the things you do once you have them hired to try to keep morale up, keep them on board, keep them engaged? A lot of things that we do that's associate facing, open door policy, encouraging associates to always come in and talk to us if there's an issue, a need, something they see they like, share it with us. We're visible on the floor. Anytime leadership goes out to a facility, we're having round tables with associates. Maybe we have lunch with them when we're there. Town halls, keeping associates informed of where the company's going, what it is we're doing, how we're growing, why we're growing, their role, the role that they play in it. For us, the largest expense that we have is employees. Far and away, that's our biggest investment. And they're important and we let them know they're important. And again, keeping them informed, resourcing them properly, not robbing them of the dignity of doing a good job, which means the tools that they get are the proper tools. They work. When they break down, we fix them immediately. Those are things that are very important to an associate because 
if they see that we will make the investment in them, in the business to help them be successful, then they'll be a part of that. They'll contribute. They'll come forward. In fact, they are our best reference for a new associate to talk to someone who works here as to why they like working here. So we're always proactive. We're always making sure we're front and center. We're listening to what they have to say. We don't dismiss it. We don't play devil's advocate with them. They have a lot of great ideas. They're the people on the front line doing the job every day. Sometimes we can't see the forest for the trees. We've got a lot of objectives. And when an associate comes up and says, hey, I'm not sure why we're doing this, Harry. If we did this instead of this, we've got to take that back and take a very hard look at that. Even if it's not something we're able to do, we still get back to an associate with a response. Hey, thanks for thanks for coming forward with that. We looked at it. We talked about it. Here's what we see as an inhibitor, or here's how we can do it in a modified format. And people feel good. Hey, listen, I came forward with an idea. Someone came back to me and said they liked it. Or, hey, can we think about this a little bit more? Give them the respect that they should have. I would tell you it's a tough job. Eight hours a day, the scenery doesn't change. To your point, packing boxes, picking orders, loading trucks, their scenery does not change day after day. It is the same. And so to the extent you can vary that job, continue training them, invest in them, rotating them so that they don't get stale, that they continue to learn, that they continue to feel challenged, they'll want to be a part of it. I love that. That's amazing. So as we're wrapping up here, one of the other questions I was like to ask everybody is if you could go back to yourself younger in your career, what advice would you give your younger self as you're going along your journey? What advice would you go back and tell yourself? I think first and foremost, uh, one of the goals of the organization and what role do I play and how can I help them attain those? Be a good corporate citizen. I think that operating procedures and rules are there for a reason. They're not a barrier. They're there. And I think it takes a level of maturity to understand why rules are written. They may not always be something that's obvious to you. And if it's not, that's okay. You could always question them and say, hey, I've got a better idea, a different. I think if earlier in my career, Stepping forward more proactively with the way I would improve things, the way I would, being diligent, just having more a better sense of involvement earlier in my career and understanding of how I can really help the company get to where it needs to be. To be that kind of an individual that what's the job to be done and you can count on me to get it done. But the one thing I would add is that when you realize you need help, ask for help. Don't wait. Bad news doesn't get better with time and something that might be minor, you're falling behind a little bit. If you ask for help when it's a small problem, people will recognize your maturity and the fact that you're smart enough to ask for help because by the time, if you don't, and it becomes a five alarm fire, by that time, everybody knows it's an issue and you don't even have to ask for help. It's coming. Those are the kind of things I've learned in my career. And again, I think it takes a level of maturity that I certainly didn't have when I was younger because I was full of all this energy and I knew all the answers and I'm not sure why we got to do this or why we have to do that. But there's reasons for everything. And if you're not sure, ask. That's that. That would be, uh, that's the best advice I give people up and coming who are looking to expand their career, not just with me, but anywhere. Be a valued asset. Yeah, one question I want to ask on that is um, one thing I, I find interesting. So I'm an entrepreneur because I don't know if I could have handled corporate. I got way too much energy. And it, well, but one thing we work with a lot of enterprises, a lot of big companies, and I see this uh, dynamic in like large corporations where you've got people that are, you have some where they're, they're very proactive, they're moving forward, there's corporate rules, they go check things and it moves. But then you have others where I feel like I've seen a lot of company cultures at enterprises where I could best be described them. It's like Facebook is move fast and break things. 
is their motto. I've seen other corporations where the motto seems to be like, don't move out of fear of screwing up and getting fired. And then, so I've seen this like flip to the other side where I'm just like, why four people are weighing in on a decision? Things are just moving so slow. And so how do you see like the balance of, I guess, trying to be safe operating in a bigger corporate environment and also like pushing forward, being proactive, actually moving, making things happen? Obviously the tone starts with leadership, right? From the top down, if you will, for lack of a better term, I really don't like that. But if you're clear on vision, if you're clear on where you want to take the organization and you align everybody with that vision and that clarity and how we're going to do it, then every decision within the organization that has to be made goes one of two ways. It either moves us closer to our end goal or it doesn't. Those things that don't, we don't need to waste time and energy on. And those things that do, we need to discuss. Yes, there are many organizations out there, whether it doesn't even have to be size, that become political, that for people, it's about maybe who, how you communicate. In our organization, it's matrixed. Everybody has a right to trespass, if you will, for lack of a better term. So if you're, if you're out in the field, it doesn't matter whether you represent IT, whether you're working for human resources, whether you're working for operations or customer service, if any of the leadership sees anything, feels there's a better way, but everybody is encouraged to have conversations with associates. And I think once you start to set a culture that there's an expectation, that there's a conversation, that there's contribution, people will do that. But you're right. It can very easily get into an organization where it's a stay in your lane mentality. They don't want to hear anything. They don't want to hear about problems. That's about walking the talk. One is communicating that, but more importantly, it's demonstrating that to the associates every opportunity that you get. Two things can happen every time there's a conversation between people, particularly between leadership and people doing the work on the floor. You're either going to walk away and say, I'm happy I had that conversation, or you're going to say, why the hell did I bother? And I make it clear with my folks, if people walk away with why the hell did I bother, you've done something wrong. You can't turn people off. Don't look at people as being as that pain in the neck is coming up to me and talking to me again. He's got another idea and I don't have to. If that's your idea, then forget it. A guy could be standing outside with a nuclear bomb while you're having a war and say, send them away. I don't have time to see them. These, again, these are the people that know how best to do it. But more importantly, if you think about what we're trying to do, we're trying to encourage participation. And if you turn people off, if you don't have the conversations, if you don't have that open door policy, if you don't, if people don't feel, hey, Harry's in the building, he really wants to know what's going on here. You need to tell him, you need to have a conversation. He's going to appreciate it. If you get to that level, you're going to win. You are for sure going to win. And it will not be your infrastructure or your people that are the reason that you're not going, which in, in, in many instances, we've met the enemy and it's us. I love that. That's incredible. Harry, I appreciate taking the time to come on here. If someone wants to go find out more about you and Amware Fulfillment, what are some of the best places for them to go look online? Best place to go to is amwarefulfillment.com. We've got all sorts of information, case studies, everything about our organization. But more importantly, there's many articles about fulfillment, success stories, something you can probably relate to, grab on. It will for sure put you in the right direction in your fulfillment or selling journey. Awesome. Thank you very much for taking the time, Harry. Jake, appreciate it. Anytime. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.